Welcome to the What's Up with Dots podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. In lieu of our traditional land acknowledgement, the What's Up with Dots team would like to take a moment to acknowledge yet again the heavy and heartbreaking mass murder of Indigenous children found at the Maribel Indian Residential School in Saskatchewan, Canada, which operated from 1899 to 1997. Indigenous children who were stolen for their families and sent to residential schools were robbed of their family, culture, and also endured involuntary sterilization, vaccine experiments, medical experiments, child trafficking, and institutionalized neglect. Following organizations are asking for donations to help survivors of residential schools. I'd like to encourage all of our non-Indigenous listeners to contribute. The Legacy of Hope Foundation's goal is to educate and raise awareness about the impacts of residential schools in the form of educational tools and consultation with survivors. The Orange Church Society works to raise awareness of intergenerational trauma caused by the residential schools and commemorates the experience of survivors. True North Aid provides practical humanitarian support to Indigenous communities in Canada. They have several categories of aid you can contribute to, including housing, food, and reconciliation projects. First Nations Child and Family Caring Society develops education initiatives, public policy campaigns, and provides resources to support First Nations communities and ensure the well-being of youth and their families. And lastly, Reconciliation Canada focuses on workshops and community outreach to further the dialogue around reconciliation. You can find links for all of these organizations on our website. In this episode, I speak with curator Abby Sun about her work with The Dockyard, an award-winning film and discussion series at the Brattle Theatre in Cambridge. We also chat about her work with Distribution Advocates, an organization committed to demystifying distribution with a goal of creating a more ethical and equitable framework. Because ethical and equitable practices are rooted in liberation and require us to take actions that break us from the things that seem safe and stable, this episode's song is Queen's I Want to Break Free. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in April 2021. So I always start the show off with um, how I how we met, and um, I want to actually talk about how you kind of like came on my radar, and I was like, oh my god, this one was a badass. Um, so it was during Getting Real 2018, and you were one on one of the panels for Decolonize the Docs. I can't remember which one it was, but you were just expressing like so much truth and um, honesty and realness about the things that need to be changed. I think you were on an industry panel, I think. Yeah, it was, it was called The Industry, and we were the first one. And um, funny story, Tony, I don't think you, maybe you don't know this, but my flight to LA, because that was the first day of getting real, were canceled and delayed multiple times that day. So I didn't even think I was going to get there. So on the plane, when I finally got onto the 
a plane. I was the last person that they let on to an already overbooked, overfull flight. And like I told the gate agent, this is the first conference that I will be speaking at professionally. I need to make it to LA. And she felt bad for me. And she like kind of like swapped the orders. There were like two gate agents, you know, working against each other. And I was like, you need to work faster for me because there's one spot left. And if the other guy gets it, I won't be able to get onto this plane. So I was also partially so well prepared for that panel because on the flight, I wasn't sure I would make it there in time. I thought I might get there an hour into the panel already starting. So I prepared all of my notes for it and I emailed Iabo and I asked her if I wasn't there, if she could read a statement from me. So I was ready to go for that panel. That particular panel for me, because I, I was actually tasked with introducing those three decolonized on um, the docs panels, which is great. Not only introducing them, but like being able to be in the room and hear what everybody had to say. That particular series of panels really was incredibly um, healing for me because a lot of the things that I've been experiencing in the doc space where I worked, I thought I was alone and dealing with it. And hearing you articulate so well some of those things, was like, oh my God, there are other people who are dealing with this. Like I have like resources who I can, I can have people who I can talk to about these things. Whereas I felt like very, um, at that point, I had very felt very isolated. Just, I just want to like, thank you for that. And then I also remember also <laughs> getting real. I'm going to tell this story. Renell knows the story. This is after your panel. I met somebody from True False because that's where you worked at at the time, from True False. They said to me, you know, Abby like really, really keeps us on our toes. And then I said, well, it'd be great if y'all could do that yourself because frankly, it's exhausting. And it came out of my mouth before I could think. And then like after I said, I'm like, oh, well, there goes my invite to that conference. But what what I was meeting by what was exhausting is the, and I think this is something you talked about, is the double work of not only doing the job, but also managing like whiteness in its various ways and managing like white fragility and having to navigate and having to constantly explain things. And Yeah. I mean, I think exhausting, not even, not just exhausting but corrupting too because I in the managing of whiteness right you know that internally there's like a hierarchy of certain things are quote-unquote worse than others so when you have a limited amount of time when you have a limited amount of attention from the predominantly white institution what do you prioritize then as the issue to address or to bring up or to deal with you know i had people former co-workers managers ask me well why didn't you bring this thing up earlier if you come to me right now with all of these examples and it can get so exhausting because there are no standards these things don't change these nobody thinks about them for me, like in that instance, it might be, well, earlier you told me if it's just one thing, then it doesn't matter. So I waited on this one to gather more examples before I brought them to you. I realized later, like that was still trying to play by their rules that were constantly shifting and constantly changing. And it caused me to start to prioritize things in the ways that the predominantly white institution did. Right. This is when I realized that like I needed to kill the colonizer in my head, in my mm, own head. Come on. At this point, you know? Mm -hmm. So in 2018, I definitely wasn't there yet. But 
there were a lot of things that I had seen that were bothering me. And the funny thing about that is, um, you know, I asked other people from True False to come to that panel. And some of the things that I said on that panel were facts that I had um, fact-checked with my managers. So these were things that they knew that, you know, I was concerned about in the past. And I also didn't want to say something that was false, but I wanted to see, you know, if they knew that it was bad too. And right, they for right. sure did. So it's kind of interesting how that happened, you know. But I think it's a... It's a common story, mm. right? It's not just you. It's not just me. It's like every institution treats its Black, Indigenous, and people of color staff in this way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned the corruption piece, like how it is not only exhausting, but corrupting. That certainly um, resonates because you are right. There's a limited amount of time. And, you know, me um, in my particular role, I wanted to make sure that I was treating everybody equitably, but also providing opportunity for folks to, who are new to the industry, who have like a lot of potential, who are folks of color, but also like non-moneyed white folks just constantly having to come up against, um, well, you didn't privilege this person in a particular way. That was like something that was really, really, it's impossible to navigate. And sometimes it would be the directive that even things like, for example, when I was be working on a grant application for somebody and I would see there are things that I need from them. Sometimes I would email them like, okay, like these are the list of things I need for them. Sometimes I would get criticized for like sending that email because, you know, they're a donor that not used to be approached this way. And I'm like, I just need their budget. But I would think with the coddling, like you want me to coddle, but like none of that gets me what I need to complete this grant application, which isn't that the goal, you know? Just having to navigate that the complexities of that was just, oh, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. But um, it does definitely um, takes its toll and it makes me think about, well, I think this is probably one of the reasons why there are so like few folks of color um, in the, the, these higher positions, you know, director positions, because I think a lot of us either get burnt out, you know, or um, we get pushed out. Yeah, I think that retention of BIPOC staff is a huge problem. And I think you can immediately tell if you're looking at the turnover in an organization, how much they actually support the staff. I do think that we are in a critical moment in the documentary field in the US right now, especially independent documentary. For instance, Erica Dilde was just announced as the new executive producer of Amdoc slash POV. And we have institutions from Sundance to Kartemquin, IDA, uh, New Orleans Film Society. All of these places are all currently searching for, interviewing for, or about to announce their new executive directors, mm. the top director executive position. Um, and I've talked to other people, uh, for instance, Sonia Childress, who says that she can't remember another time in the last couple of decades in independent film in the US where there has been so many positions open mm -hmm. and so many organizations specifically looking for Black women mm -hmm. uh, to fill these positions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that we're kind of at an interesting critical juncture because I feel like just like in the corporate world, it's been like a one century pandemic, multiple, multiple crises, like climate crises 
police brutality, mm. uprisings in this country that is finally catalyzed from so much pain. Um, this recognition that organizations need to stay relevant mm -hmm. also in terms of who's leading these organizations. It does make me wonder, though, um, same thing as in the corporate world, when it's people of color who are brought in to fix the messes, how well prepared these institutions really will be to support these new leaders and yes. any new staff that they might bring in. Um, and I think that there's a lot of room for organizations to put their priorities where they say mm -hmm. they're going to put them coming up. But as you and I know, you can say all the pretty words that you want, but it's really going to be actions that speak louder. Yeah. Um, and th that's a great point about like so many positions being open, but uh, also, you know, there's an issue with like not all of our skin folk are kin folk and always go back to, you know, they appointed Clarence Thomas to Thurgood Marshall's seat on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And then um, for those of you who haven't seen the Asian Americans at Berkeley, when they were like protesting for the ethnic studies programs, they employed this Japanese American man who was clearly on the side of like maintaining the status quo. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And even within that series itself, too, they interviewed Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, for instance, who used her position to benefit her own already really wealthy family with kickbacks. I mean, and I won't even get into Andrew Yang. Like, I mean, I, well, I know he got, he got criticized like recently. Oh, gosh. I mean, he just continuously like sticks his be in his mouth. It's kind of interesting. I've heard from people that are more involved, like friends that are in the Asian American activism sphere, that he has worked beside, has been trained by, has been mentored by many progressive Asian American women. And people are constantly surprised by how little he seems to know or understand. But I mean, just in terms of the most recent gaffe that he made, did you see his tweet like last week about National Adopt-A-Pet Day or National Pet Day? He basically tweeted a photo of a dog that his family used to have. Mm -hmm. And apparently it's a dog that they adopted, but then they quote unquote had to give the dog away because it turns out that his kids were allergic. <laughs> um, and so he would tweet that on National Pet Day. <laughs> uh, who's like copy editing his social media trips <laughs> because he just, you need the social media manager, right. clearly. Yeah, but he seems to be really seeped in respectability politics. I'm 49 and I'm born and raised in the South. Mm -hmm. So I, I was part of that generation that somewhat benefited from the civil rights uh, before Reagan started stripping, mm -hmm. <laughs> stripping them. Like I was, even though, you know, my parents taught me, you know, black pride and stuff, I was still very much seeped in respectability politics. You know, if I appear a certain way, if I act a certain way, then I'll be accepted. Yang seems to kind of be of that ilk. I would say absolutely. Also, because if you immigrated to the U.S. at that time when his parents did, you essentially were already had a relative in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Or because his parents are Taiwanese, you have some sort of professional background. You know, he didn't grow up poor. 
he grew up upper middle class. His parents are professionals. Um, and they're very much, even though, so his wife, Evelyn, is multiple generations, I believe, family from New York. But for sure, I think what you've tapped into, um, and it's also been called an Asian American scholarship and in activist circles as boba liberalism or assimilationist politics. It's this idea that, you know, like it's the, the cute media artifacts the things like boba that everybody knows and loves and are non-threatening that that is you know going to be the soft power of asian americans in this country like boba liberalism is like um putting all of the grassroots activist power behind trying to make crazy rich asians a gold open as if you know selling tickets for a Hollywood studio finance film is going to be the same as, you know, uh, anti-gentrification activism in Chinatowns across this U.S. To me, like, I see it as part and parcel with respectability politics, which is absolutely part of it, but also this assimilationist urge that, like, in ancient America, the thing that people are always reacting against is this idea that Asian Americans are always seen as the perpetual foreigners. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Respectability politics is to become American, that, like, if we are good enough, we will be accepted. Right. Which is, I mean, mm-hmm. we've, we've all seen what's happened yeah. over the last year. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, because um, when COVID hit, that whole yellow peril through line came back with a vicious quickness. There's a movie, when it's like one of Denzel Washington's earlier films, but it's, it's based on a play, a soldier's play, but it's called A Soldier, uh, a Soldier's Story. The premise of it is it's set during World War II, and this um, African-American sergeant is murdered. This Black lieutenant comes down to investigate, you know, and it's the first time a lot of them have actually seen like a Black officer. Like when he's shot, he's like, he's drunk and he's screaming and he's very rageful and he has a really a lot of hate. He's a black man, but who has a lot of hatred towards towards black folks who he deems don't follow the mold that whites will accept. As he's dying before he's shot, he screams out, you know, no matter what you do, they still hate you. He has this desperate need for acceptance, but like he's he realizes that is not gonna happen for him. Um so I won't tell you an end. It's a phenomenal movie, um, phenomenal cast. Like Robert Townsend's in it, a whole like lot of greats are in it. And that particular line that has always stood with me because there's this message in America that you're supposed to assimilate. But really, it's a lie because in the end, you don't get accepted. But then also there's a question, okay, why is there a need to be accepted by the system that is so fraught with all these like flaws and issues from the start? Is this the system we want to be a part of? Is this a worthy goal to be attaining? I mean, it's such a fraught, difficult history but it's also i think part of the function of white supremacy is to erase collective history and memory yes because if you don't remember you know these things it makes like false narratives and false histories easier to impose so i also don't necessarily even like blame asian america is a it's a term that was a political tool, right? Right. right. Like, does it? It doesn't even exist on the census form. Um, not that you know the as racial categories like on the U.S. census form are you know they're formed, they're not your scientific 
fact, um, as we know. And again, I'm not saying that it has like no right. bearing on mm-hmm. our like reality and lived experience, but right. One thing that it makes me think about is this idea just because I kind of critiqued it a little bit, um, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, is really, truly how important and how powerful are media narratives and are independent documentaries in reforming these media narratives. Because the power of documentary films comes from the fact that they are derived from reality. It's from real people's lived experiences, um, so on and so forth. And for sure, documentaries have been used in impact campaigns, have been used to spread awareness. A lot of them have changed my own lives. They've changed the course of, you know, popular understandings about certain things. They've forced corporations to really reckon with their practices. I'm thinking about a film like Blackfish, which changed SeaWorld. I, I, I'm really uncomfortable with that film because I think it's, you know, does make a spectacle out of death in a way that I find mm. kind of disturbing. Like it sells mm-hmm. a lot of tickets, but it's playing into a lot of the same merges that um, I see reflected in, you know, crisis news and broadcast journalism and all of that. But at the same time, it seems to me to be quite limiting to reduce the value of film and of art down to a purely utilitarian like how many people's minds can Mm -hmm, this change mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and things like that because I do feel that if your mind can be changed after watching one film how sure of your own worldview were you in the first place you know I mean I would love it if people were able to be convinced that like progressive ideologies and democratic (laughs) socialism is the Mm -hmm. way to go after watching like a couple of documentaries about it but if that were true then it would be just as easy for someone Mm -hmm. like you or me to watch a film about racist ideologies and be convinced that way right like I, I I'm thinking a lot about what it means to have like truly participatory, like civic and digital media infrastructures and what that would actually mean for the ways that we produce and disseminate films. So that's why I've sort of moved on to more thinking about how do we show this media? How do we contextualize it? All of what you talked about in terms of like ensuring equity for people who are looking for resources to make films. I'm really thinking about just beyond the content itself. How do we distribute films? How do we exhibit them? How do we talk about them relationally? Reveal about, you know, our relationships with each other, with filmmakers, with people that we're supposed to care about. Since you mentioned distribution, tell us about Distribution Advocates. Distribution Advocates was started by Amy Hobby and Karen Chen, apparently at some sort of Ford Foundation gathering at Sundance one year. And apparently they started their own Slack channel, but nobody else commented or participated in Slack other than the two of them. So actually, uh, last year, right before the pandemic started, um, I think like January of 2020, I and a couple of other folks got invited into Distribution Advocate to just start having weekly meetings talking about what was wrong with 
what we saw with distribution. But at the time, we were really kind of tackling the question: Why don't people care about distribution, and why don't people understand the differences between distribution, exhibition, impact producing, marketing, sales, non-theatrical releases, aggregators? There was kind of this. Conception that all of these things are like one big mess, and it all sort of happens. All filmmakers want distribution, but they don't necessarily understand how or what it is or how it works. And even filmmakers,、um, we are pulling together our experiences. We realize that even filmmakers who had made a first feature that had gotten it distributed. Didn't necessarily understand what was going on because they may have had a producer taking care of things for them, and therefore they didn't quite understand, you know, what they could have negotiated for. Or maybe it also was a first-time producer who didn't know what could be negotiated for. I think a lot of filmmakers they have to put so much energy into just getting the film made. Really, a lot of times, you know, distribution can be almost like an afterthought because the assumption is like, oh, I'll get in the festivals, and then your know, distributor will pick it up, and like, nah, it's not that easy. It is more complicated than that. It's exactly what you just said, Tony. This is something that, like, we who work in the industry, especially in filmmaker services or people who have close contact with filmmakers, is throughout the process of making a film that we really understand there is this myth, and that is the way that things are done. And what really、uh, I find troubling is that it's not. Only the fact that that myth has become stronger and stronger over time, but that also the amount of festivals that people understand will unlock distribution deals have gotten smaller and smaller because the power is getting more and more concentrated at the few market-oriented festivals, Sundance or South by or Tribeca. In the U.S.,、um, so there's this feeling that like if I don't get into Sundance, then my film won't get distributed, which is you know has kernels of truth in it. Like all distributors will look at the Sundance lineup, but just because one gets a film into Sundance does not mean that it will automatically get distribution. And just because someone does not get into Sundance does not mean that you will not get distribution. But the more From the distribution advocate's point of view, the goal is not to get more films into Sundance because that's not going to happen. Because Sundance derives its power from being exclusionary, from being able to choose and say that they have the quote unquote cream of the crop. Though you know, I watch plenty of Sundance films every year that I think are terrible, which is not a knock against. Sundance. That's just how it is at every festival. Yeah, and not and not everything that gets into Sundance is good. Because I've been to Sundance twice. I've seen like a couple of bad movies. I'm thinking, well, how did this get in? If we're talking about quality, people need to understand that you know Sundance is a good festival and has many merits. But your Sundance may not be the appropriate vehicle. For your film, like there are other vehicles out there. I guess just to dig into that a little bit more, because I always like to be really specific when we talk about these things, because I think oftentimes we can throw around ideas or terms, but it kind of feels like insider baseball, you know. I totally jive with everything you just said, Tony. Some of the ways that I was thinking about it, in terms of what you just said. So, for instance, you know, in order to really make the most out of Sundance, a feature film 
really needs to have a sales agent and a separate publicist because Sundance, while not being the biggest of kind of the premiere oriented festivals around the world, you know, TIFF is far larger. Berlin plays more film. Actually, I'm not sure. Sundance has like about 200 features that they play in a regular year. Mm-hmm. And you're going up against films that um, have, you know, streaming support, Netflix, Amazon support. A lot of these films have been pre-sold, but the announcements are during the festival, you know? So it looks like there's more of a bidding war, but there's also more money behind these films than it appears. There's also films that for sure, you know, hold out for that bidding war, but they all come with big, bigger than one would expect for indie budgets because a lot of these things, you know, international co-productions these days, in documentaries XTR funded nine of the documentary films out of the 30 or so that were programmed at Sundance this year in 2021 Zappos money just putting it out there um RIP um to uh, the founder but this is a lot of money that's behind those films and if one truly has something that is independently produced and there are a few of those every year at Sundance still you need to compete for time the way that it works I'm also a film critic and I covered Sundance last couple of years for Filmmaker is that I mean I, I kind of have a sweet deal with Filmmaker the last two years because they basically gave me free reign to write about what I would like but at a lot of other places The way the publications work is, um, you know, you have an editor and the editor like has a pool of writers that they want to cover usually as many of the films as possible. Um, And then they assign the films to writers. And that coverage is kind of already set, guaranteed. What the publicists are looking to do is they're looking to place like kind of the special interest stories. They're looking to place the Vanity Fair profile that Rebecca Hall got before the premiere passing. But they're also looking for like the freelancers to pitch to publication because filmmaker outside of like the critics notebooks all of their coverage which is a lot of interviews with filmmakers interviews with below the line crew uh because it's filmmaker magazine those are all pitched to filmmaker by freelance writers and so you know you need a publicist to pitch basically your film to the writers um who who then go on to pitch the editor. Exactly. So like one thinks it's an even playing field once you get to Sundance, but even before you hire your publicist, I'm saying like it matters when a festival like Sundance schedules your film, like schedules the screening. If you're scheduled for a Sunday morning, 10 a.m. screening, that (laughs) is going to get you... A lot of hungover people, if they bother to show up at all, compared to the Friday night, like 7 p.m. primetime slot. Those things are negotiated uh, with the festivals. They don't just happen. And it's the same way, like, why could a bad film come? Uh, There's different programming philosophies. You know, Sundance is a festival, like many others in the U.S., that does value what they call passion yes, or controversy yes yes, yes. you would rather that, program those are, films, yes you know like so this makes it interesting then to like as a programmer to be on a curatorial team mm-hmm. because sometimes the way to ensure that a film that one hates gets into a festival mm-hmm. is to actually object to it 
because they know that you know all all publicity is good publicity. There's no bad publicity. They want some controversial films, you know. Some of the bad films I've seen at Sundance, like during the Q and A, I'm like, oh, they have a really good story about the making of, you know, something like big happen or there was like uh, a threat of the loss of life. Maybe that's why they got hit. Yeah. I mean, there's just all these reasons. Like Sundance is the place where people go to buy films. So it's not, it's also like about satisfying a market so that buyers continue to come back so that they can offer big numbers for Sundance films. It's like, you know, a self-perpetuating system at this point. But but also Sundance, one of the, the, the first big festival. So too. So um, the the fact that it's in January, you know, exactly, it orients the 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 festival calendar around it in the U.S. because everybody is editing their films for Sundance. You can a hundred percent, I guarantee you that like ninety in September, like exactly August, September. the submission <laughs> deadline. The same way that every film that is at Locarno or Venice. I guarantee like, was probably rejected by Cannes. Every film in the US that shows up at South by or Tribeca as a premiere was probably rejected by Sundance because it sets the terms of the festival calendar. That doesn't mean that Tribeca or South by has an automatically worse lineup. And just to be clear, you know, because they're all accepting and rejecting films for different reasons. The idea for distribution advocates is that no one festival will save us. And it's the way that the system is set up that is wrong. It's the fact that Sundance has so much power that they reorient the entire like production calendar of every single independent film in the U.S. That is the problem because it, it creates this hierarchy. So the idea is how can we have a diversity of systems, of solutions, of types of festivals, of types of distribution, of collective models where we're not competing against each other for slots, but, you know, success, a rising tide can lift all boats. So those are the questions that we're asking at Distribution Advocates. One thing I want you to speak to is, you know, last year when COVID hit, Sundance happened in January. Novella and I both we were both there, and then we went to Big Sky in February. End of February, beginning of March, that's when we began to see like how that we were in a potential pandemic. We didn't know quite yet, but things were coming around. And then South by Southwest, they were the first big festival to cancel. That really put like shockwaves throughout the industry. <laughs> Because like, oh, like this is like a real, real thing. And, but also like part of that, like after uh, South by Southwest canceled and festivals began to announce that they were putting off their opening dates or they were postponing. And it really, as far as distribution, um, tied a lot of filmmakers' hands because they were getting all kinds of information. So um, particularly when it became clear that some festivals are going to have, be, have to stream 
I talked to filmmakers who said, you know, yeah, I was offered this premiere at, um, you know, this particular festival, but then, you know, I'm worried, like, how would that impact my distribution, like, on a pot potential streaming platform? Because there are rumors out there that, you know, if your film streams online via a festival, even though, like, it's geo-blocked or whatever, and only a certain number of tickets are sold, uh, a Netflix or Hulu might turn you down. And there's, there's a lot of fear. It became clear about how powerful, but also how dependent the system is on the festivals. I just want you to speak to that and how that's informed the work with distribution advocates and particularly in regards to like making a more egalitarian system, but also teaching filmmakers about there are options out there. Yeah, I think the opening days of the pandemic when lockdowns were happening around the world, like so you know, lockdowns were happening in China, in Asia, in January and February, but I, I'm really talking about March and April, um, when a lot of these festivals were being canceled. I think it was really chaotic for everyone because, and, and, and we were scared at Distribution Advocate in March and April because we know that when there is disaster, and this is something that uh, Cecilia Alderondo talks a lot about um, in her film Landfall and then also on panels. Disaster capitalism is a real thing where the rich and powerful take advantage of chaos and of tragedy to profit. And we've seen this with Netflix and Amazon. I would say sort of our stance in those early days was twofold. One, we had heard from people that we knew working in these streaming companies. There was this hope, for instance, that with in-person production halting, that perhaps streamers would want to pick up more content. But the reality is that these streamers already have content scheduled three years in advance, and they are, were not looking and are not looking to mostly at this point, pick up anything that is completed. They are really looking for their own production pipeline. You see something like Coda selling huge. You see films like um, Summer of Soul selling for $15 million. But that's kind of like the only thing those streamers are buying at festivals. They're buying one film and they're buying that kind of like big film that they think will be their Oscars film or to add to their stable of potential Oscars films. I want to kind of speak to that. The people who live in LA who have been to like to the Netflix offices, when you go into the lobby, the first thing you see after you go through the little security, I think as you're going through security is they, they have their all their awards. So they have their Oscars and their Emmys and um, yeah, and like so, it's very clear about what their goals are. <laughs> yeah, wait. So, are they just like in cabinets, like it lining like the hallway? No, it's like it's like in a case. At the time, I thought that there were actually a lot of webinars that were explaining things. Um, and so, for distribution advocates, we didn't feel comfortable adding anything of our own. Also, uh, you know, several of the members at the time were part of Tribeca Film Institute, which, you know, was going through its own crisis um, in the pandemic. So I have to say that once everything like calmed down and it was clear that 
um, in official lingo, TFI is on indefinite pause, but we all know what that means. We started thinking about, well, okay, so what has happened? Because what we saw was that very quickly, a lot of things that we thought would be like negotiable and would be unstable where there might be room for filmmakers and for, you know, smaller institutions to push back. A lot of it quickly became concretized and ossified really quickly already. And I'm not even talking about something like geoblocking. I've been doing some research in, in a grad program right now about how geoblocking is related like to earlier regional restrictions of DVD players and even in like regional categories at film festivals, things like that. Um, I think it's part of a much longer contemporary than this kind of COVID-induced thing makes us think. I mean, even the fact, for instance, that Netflix shows different content in different countries. Those weren't even the things that we're concerned about. What we're concerned about, what we saw as like, things that were truly breaks in the industry um, down a very dark path. So one of the things that like members of distribution advocates that we talk about all the time on panels is the removal of the Paramount decree, which forbade distributors from being exhibitors. There's a reason why Netflix now no longer even places so much emphasis on their screening rooms, because now Netflix owns theaters. You know, there's rumors that Amazon's looking into buying their own theater chain. This is what uh, Warner Brothers was in Paramount negotiated deals with theater chains with AMC during the pandemic that they should not have been able, they would not have been able to negotiate in the past for like first look deals things like that but also what what this has caused too is for certain strange things to happen even in the independent sphere so for instance you know distributors were reliant on art house cinemas for essentially being the space into the heartland of the country into you know certain neighborhoods in LA and New York but once every distributor set up their own virtual cinema, which in the early days and still now, the ways that art house theater virtual cinemas work is that it's connected to a distributor's page hosted on Aventive or Kino Marquee or CineSend or Vimeo OTT. And so even though the distributor is is giving, usually it's like 40% or 50% of the box office receipts to the theater, what's happening is that they are collecting the data of the customers. Essentially, they're cutting out the theater as the middleman, as the exhibitor. Now they have a direct-to-consumer relationship. This is not everyone at an art house cinema, right? Not everybody like watches films online. People will still prefer the in-person experience for like date night, so on and so forth. But it's this further, I mean, it's what we call platform capitalism these days that like what you're selling is not just money but it's access to people's time to their information to their email inboxes and what we've seen as part of distribution advocates is the total encroachment of platform capitalism into spaces that used to be very community oriented within the film industry 
And this is really concerning to us. This is why even festivals like New York Film Festival, TIFF, Sundance are doing on the festival scale too. Sundance, you know, I'm not saying it being limited was like a good thing. It's expensive. It was cold. It was miserable. Like I could watch Sundance from my couch every year. I would be okay like on an experience level myself personally of course you know all of the serendipity of in-person meetings all of those things like those are really really valuable um for such a relationship oriented business like this one with covid obviously there is like um everybody was like watching was streaming everything but there can mm-hmm. there was this resurgence and in, in drive-ins and like pop-up mm-hmm. theaters and um, I don't know if there's like any entity that was collecting data on that. There are large companies and you know festivals who got into that. So I think it was Tribeca actually had a partnership with, with Walmart where there was screening. And, but then also there were smaller communities who were creating kind of their own festival-like events where um, it's like, for example, I, and I think um, Tracy Rector in Seattle organize uh, an indigenous like drive-in festival. I mean, do you think some of those things are going to stay because like it provides a, a unique filmmaking experience? Is there somebody collecting data on those? How much does those kind of opportunities benefit an independent filmmaker, if, if at all? What's really interesting is that it's like super disparate right now, like where these drive-ins come from. Some of them have come from festivals, from theaters, others from, you know, drive-in specialists chains. The ones that are licensed theaters are reporting to Box Office Mojo to all of the same. So that data is available. But there's a lot that's informal, like you said, that's really community oriented that do not report their um, box office because they're not, you know, quote unquote, licensed drive-in theaters. It might be a pop-up drive-in in the parking lot of the community arts center you know as far as we know there's no data right now being collected on this but this is a new distribution advocates research project we have secured a grant from a funder i don't think i can reveal what it is just yet but we are talking with another potential funder once we have a sense of what the overall amount of money that we're working with is we will be embarking on on several research data collecting projects. And one of them is exactly what you just asked. It is like what has been going on in this past year, but it's also looking a little bit further back than that into kind of the more recent past. So I, what I can say is that right now, kind of our research project is assembling the research that is already out there because nobody is also exactly quite sure what is out there. And a lot of it will need to be aggregated. Like I, we think that a lot of this information is public, but it hasn't been collected. And so um, hopefully, you know, we'll have some sort of report in the next few months to share about that. What I will say on your point, and I'm so glad, Tony, that you brought up that even though I've been doom and gloom, you know, for the last 20 minutes, we have also seen really interesting things happen. I think that Tracy's festival is a great example. I think that, you know, several of the Sundance satellites were drive-in that were offered for free to the community. Um, So I want to shout out the Luminal Theater in Columbia, South Carolina, because they ran their Sundance satellite as a free drive-in community screening model uh, instead of charging for tickets. 
reference to their Sundance screening. So I think that's a really, really great way of doing things. But they were able to leverage, you know, years of pop-up screenings in Brooklyn and in other places in this country and foundational like uh, support from community arts organizations to be able to do something like that. So it's not like they just came out of midair and it wasn't like philanthropic. I guess, just to make it really clear, I think really for the Luminal Theater, you know, about serving their community. Um, And like, I would say also, there are absolutely really interesting online festivals that are happening, an online screening series. And what I've seen in the last couple of months, really interesting, like targeted, specific online streaming services, Flix. Jewish film festivals that banded together and started a streaming service of Jewish films. Again, I don't know very much about streaming services, but I'm finding them kind of interesting. Also, again, I'm not saying I haven't seen any films on these streaming services, so I'm not, you know, I just think that they're kind of interesting business models at this moment that I don't think would have been possible without this sort of new adoption and understanding of streaming as distribution and exhibition and of the collapsing of two previously segregated forms. Um, for instance, there's this new service called Hoot Docs, which is like a nonprofit streamer that um, is only going to be showing uh, documentaries made in Indiana by Indiana-based filmmakers. And the idea is that they are charging $10 a month, which is more than Netflix, because they see it essentially as wealth redistribution of paying Indiana-based filmmakers for their Indiana-based films. And eventually their goal is to start funding productions in Indiana. There are art house cinemas that have banded together. So instead of just linking to, you know, distributors, virtual cinemas, they are like launching their own kind of collective streaming sites. So Connie White of Booking. Uh, this is another thing that I will say in, in theaters in this country, many of the art house cinemas do not in fact program their own films. This is a common misconception too. A lot of them hire out for a booker to book all of their first one titles. Theater itself might book one-off screenings, like a monthly community screening series or educational screening series, or, you know, it doesn't mean that they will never program films themselves, but that the majority of what will make money for them, the terms, all of that is negotiated by a third-party booker who specializes in them. You know, so, so now it starts to make more sense to like also the hierarchy of distributors, how like one distributor might be able to get a film into a whole bunch of theaters and then the, for the next film might not be able to. The answer might simply honestly just be the booker who books films for 30 theaters across this country thought that one film was going to sell better than another. And that's it. That was the decision-making process. Yeah, it, I wanted to ask, the, because I never realized that thing about the booker. So are there like a, like a handful of bookers who are kind of like controlling essentially the art house movie theater space? There are a couple of people who have a lot of 
theater clients. Um, and I would say that Connie White of Balcony Booking is the booker with the most clients. And she's local to Boston, actually. She used to, she has won art house cinemas in the past. So she was the former programmer at the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square, which is where the series that I programmed, The Dockyard, is at the Brattle. And then after that, she uh, was sort of recruited across the Charles to Coolidge Corner, another extraordinarily well-respected uh, regional art house cinema where she really helped kind of save financially Coolidge Corner. And so from what I understand of her history, and this is totally secondhand, uh, this is not fact-checked, from what I understand of her history is that because she turned around Coolidge Corner with her programming of first one title you know a couple of other theaters like the executive directors of the board started asking her hey while you're booking for Coolidge will you book for us because you clearly have your finger on the pulse and so yeah she started doing that and now she has multiple employees I believe they have 30 or 40 years which include a lot of like the major art house cinemas around the country they're mostly regionally oriented there are west coast bookers because that's how distributors work too like um it gets complicated if you leave your region because theatrical bookers that work at distributors in-house they're divided regionally so like you know if you are a theater and you want to play a film for instance from a24 and you're in the midwest you would call the a24 midwest rep like there would be a special person just for all of the theaters in that region, kind of like how, I don't know, college admissions works, you know, the admissions officers divide it regionally. So bookers usually work regionally too, because it's like, you know, less work because then they they go to the same people and they can book, you know, eight theaters at once or something like that. That being said, there are for sure theaters that still book 100% of their new films. I'm also saying this is not necessarily a bad model because oftentimes, you know, a booker like Connie has a really long-standing relationship with a lot of distributors. So the theaters feel like they're getting a lot of value out of hiring someone like Balcony Booking because they have additional institutional rate you know, it's like filmmakers hiring an agent. Like you got someone like advocating, like this film's gonna do well at this theater. Like, because, okay, I guess here's the other thing is that the bookers aren't only convincing distributors to give theaters like films for certain dates. They're also negotiating the terms. And what they're negotiating is really important to theaters and to distributors both, but they're also kind of both kind of stuck. And for what, at distribution advocates, what we consider kind of an old way of doing things. And this idea is that distributors are trying to maximize the amount of times a theater plays their film in the theater. Ideally for them, they don't want theaters splitting a screen. Let's say it's a two-screen art house. They don't want them splitting a screen with like a competitor's film where, you know, the theater is like all because, I mean, the more times you show a film, like the more tickets you're going to sell. But on the other hand, the theaters know like, you know, we kind of have a limited audience but also maybe just for programmatic purposes, maybe, you know, you know something's not going to sell, but you want to make space for it anyway, because that's the ideal audience and the ideal community that you want to bring and make feel welcome. Like kind of there's this push and pull, you know, but then 
also many of these art houses also are in like college towns or mid-sized you know capital you know the biggest city in the state something like that they have multiplexes that they're competing against and a lot of these are like 16 18 20 screen theaters and they play art house movies too you know so what happens is a booker or the programmer whoever's booking films for the theater is also trying to negotiate what's called an exclusive for the city with the distributor so let's say you know i'm programming a theater and like moonlight is coming out and i know like moonlight's gotten so much buzz you know it's gonna do gangbusters like the lgbtq you know board members like really want to see the film like on their comfy couches and you know want to like feel like they're all of these things you know this film is like big and like the landmark theater down the street is also gonna play it and if you're competing in the landmark like only like the die like the people who just go online to see where they can watch a movie you're competing against like you know the multiplex so then you'd go to like the distributor a24 and you would say like i want an exclusive what can i do to make sure that you will give me the exclusive which means for one week for two weeks however long it is the distributor does not give the multiplex the film that you know that will basically keep the art house cinema afloat for the next year if they can want it for two weeks then a24 or distributor of a24 size that has a hit like moonlight will then come back and say you have two screens we want you to play it three or four times a day on both screens you can't play any other films for these two weeks and so then then you have to make your bet at that point do you show moonlight for those two weeks do you show la la land for those two weeks do you show the favorite for those two weeks like which one are you betting on at that point and so then the decisions get like quite political but that's what a booker does like, out of in a programmer like, so again the same thing with like the film festivals like you think you know you get there everything's gonna happen no you know like every single aspect of this business is up for negotiation and it it hurts it harms you know hopefully there's a win-win situation for everyone in my opinion I don't think it needs to be like zero sum um but right now like the way that it's set up it's like this monopolistic kind of flavor this idea people want you know it's not about creating a healthier ecosystem it's about getting your own film ahead even if like you know like for instance for that tactic i'm not saying this happened at any theater or anything like that and i'm not playing out moonlight or a24 to be really clear like this is what every distributor tries to do with that caliber of film but ultimately i think it kind of harms the theater because they are probably selling a lot of tickets for instance to a film like moonlight they're probably not selling out all day they could be showing other films without necessarily taking away i would assume like the overall box office draw for a bigger film but they and you know support more like diversity on screen in terms of representation instead of being locked in to like 
So if you ever wonder, like, why does my art house like only show like these two films a week? Well, it's because this is what the distributors demand in a lot of cases. And in other cases, it's just easier to book fewer films. You know, so I'm not saying there are like, I mean, there are many reasons why things are the way that they are. But there are many people who are trying to do good programming and, you know, do good series and bring diversity to the screens. And there are some really complicated industry mm. mechanisms that prevent that from happening. And that's part of the goal of distribution mm-hmm. advocates. Like when we hear these conversations, like, you know, why aren't these films getting shown? Oh, well, we just need to get distributors to pick them up more. Well, it's more complicated than that. I think that the mechanics of how the industry works are maybe you know not as cool or exciting to think and talk about as um, other things that are incredibly important as we are recording this beyond inclusion has submitted their letter to pbs super important i encourage everyone to sign it i hope you will have by the time this episode gets dropped i hope things will have happened by the time this episode drops of course I don't expect anything because I understand the institutions in this industry at this point. But I do think that like knowing the nitty gritty of how things work um, is really important, not because things have to stay this way or that this is how things should be. I think there's a lot of things wrong, to be really clear, with all the systems that I just described today. So that's kind of my caveat. But I do think that when it comes to like making new systems and you know holding each other in community, we kind of have to know for real, like why were things not working in the past so that we don't replicate the same mistakes. So many filmmakers are so hyper-focused on completing their film that distribution is often an afterthought. And this is understandable. Getting a film done is no easy task. Abby adamantly encourages filmmakers to think ahead about their distribution options and ask the detailed and complex questions. This is part of the business of film. It may not be sexy, but these are the things you need to know. So find those organizations like distribution advocates that are committed to telling the truth and providing details and specifics about how to navigate the visible and invisible worlds of distribution. Start to demand transparency. And when you're at a panel and you ask a specific question, get your specific answer. So organization A wants to create more equitable distribution models. Ask them for one to two specific ways they're planning to do so. And what is their deadline? You're in the game and you deserve to know all the rules ahead of time, just like everybody else. Abby also asked us to shift how we view distribution. Distribution should be looked at as a means to create a truly participatory media structure, to reform media narratives, and a way to adopt a relational rather than transactional approach. With this view, we can create the world we want. In our next episode, we head to Chi-Town, also known as the Windy City, where we speak with Matt Lauterbach, Krishma Shaw, and Rebecca Torres of All Senses Go and the Real Abilities Film Festival. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcasts. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling your stories.
Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. What's Up with Doc's team would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. 